Hey everyone, I'm Mallory Rubin and I am thrilled to tell you that House of R has a new podcast feed. Joanna Robinson and I will now be with you twice a week with more of the deep dives you've come to know and love on the Ringerverse. In addition to exploring all of your favorite nerd culture new releases, we'll have nostalgic revisitations, hype meters, Hall of Fame inductions, tropes courses, drafts, and more. All bad babies are welcome as we dive into Star Wars, Marvel, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and beyond. Follow the new House of Our feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, his entire Spotify wrapped is just old episodes of the Andy Greenwald show. First of all, it's podcast. <laughs> it's Andy Greenwald! It would show up as channel 33. Oh, that's it? right. Yeah, I remember that. That was wow. a little, a little Bill Innovation. Bill Ovation that we, used, we call them around these parts. Listen, we're going to talk about We've watched, we're watching television again. I think oh, yeah. people, the streets need to know we are back up. Okay. <laughs> we got the curse. We got slow horses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I want to start where you just started. Okay. Which is to say, I have never felt my age more in my life than this morning when I, you know, I, okay, yes, I'll click on it. And I looked at my Spotify wrapped and uh, apparently I only listened to jazz records. Oh, yeah. Well, and it said, you know, there's the new feature. It's just, just like, where do you belong? Like, where do people listen to music like you? Berkeley, California. <laughs> they were like, 40% of Bill Evans' trio fans live in the there's Bay Area. There's a lot area. of exciting political discourse happening in Berkeley, California. Yeah, it right is now. the place to be for people like me. I think they could use, listen to some more jazz, it, honestly. chill out. I it was disheartening. Want to say mm-hmm. thank you to everybody who included us in their Spotify Wrapped oh. posts, um, and and have spent so much time listening to the pod over the years. It's really and nice. This year, it's really awesome. I don't really participate in the personal promotion so in so much of like talking about my own listening habits. I'll tell you why. Because you use Neil Young's Pono player up until. I believe uh, August of this year. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. My wife and I shared a Spotify account. Mm-hmm. And when we were first hired by Spotify, and people were asking incredibly thoughtful questions mm. about um, you know, what what the future was gonna be like and what Spotify and the ringer were gonna mean together. Mm-hmm. My number one question for a relatively high-ranking Spotify executive is do you know if we can split the algo so that my wife's listening doesn't impact mine? 
and he was like, no, dog. <laughs> so give us an example. I know we talked about this last year. I'll give but you like, an example. What? My number one artist in June was Tori Amos. Oh. <laughs> uh, not really in the top 10,000 artists that I would personally For- listen to, but with no disrespect to Tori Amos, it's just never really been my jam. And so my entire rap is that. It's just... Songs that my wife listens to after I go to bed. For what it's worth, my most listened to artist in May was Wes Montgomery. <laughs> yeah, because you I, and my wife should talk. Because I fire up a Bill Evans record and I'm like, go to artist radio. Uh-huh. And then, you know. That's sweet. Probably, You're a thousand years old. I know. Go to artist radio? Yeah, no, or song rakes. I'm like, I want to hear more things like this because maybe I'm cooking dinner or something yeah. and there isn't a new episode of Philly Special up yet. So, you know. That's, See, if we're being real. Spot, our Spotify rap is just the Philly special. It's just, the, my favorite part was where it said, your number, you've spent like, you know, 30,000 hours listening to these three podcasts this year. Not the watch, sorry. And then they were well, like- I don't expect you to listen to this podcast. Oh, okay. Um, Do you think I listen to the watch? Not, not um, the rewatchables. Either. Okay. Okay, fine. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, did you want me to make it more pointed? <laughs> what it said was, the Bill Simmons podcast. Would you like to send him a thank you? It would I was be great like, if you had joined us like full time at Spotify. Yeah. If your question for this person was, is there a way to get Chris excised from my Spotify? Yeah, can I have feed? less Chris in my feed? Yeah. Well, no. So, so yeah. Okay. So, so I'm using it more for like the house, like to listen to things. Then, but then it was also like my number two artist of the year was um, Military Gun. That's your number two artist of the year. Yeah. I'm I'm so glad I hardcore pilled you. Yes. Yeah. So I'm still I'm I'm alive. There's something in here. But what I was surprised about was I was expecting to do the same thing that you've done, which was I, I thought that that my number one through five songs of the year would be the different clean versions of Olivia Rodrigo songs that my daughters have requested me play in the car. Mm-hmm. Um but they Did they ne- request the clean version? Yes. Come on. Yes. Yes. My older daughter sees the Scarlet E and was like, nope. Although that's loosened up a bit now that she sees now that she's watched a lot of like eras tour yeah. content and she realizes that you know certain words aren't bad they can be used beautifully or Th- that that's what we always tell her about James Crumley novels <laughs> <laughs> you know but but now they have their own account that they're using mm-hmm. so I can't blame it on anything other than the fact that I'm extremely old now and I my only intake apparently and I, I feel like I've been listening to a lot of new music. I, I, I told you about a lot of it on this podcast. I know. I'm going to put up a playlist of songs that I've liked, but I think none of them have been listened to as much as like B Minor Melody by Bill Evans in 1960. Look, I'm just going to put up a, a playlist of, of little, various versions of Little Earthquakes. So That's you. Speaking of you. Yeah, let's do it. Let's make this about me. Uh, just a little bit of admin. Yeah. Our boy is in the New York Times today. Oh, yeah. Uh, Andy wrote a piece for the New York Times, the book section. Yeah, that, that's, that suits my Spotify rap. Uh, about la- our, like maybe our collective favorite author right yeah. now, Larry McMurtry. Yeah. Uh, right now, as if, I mean, he's no longer going concerned. But I, I like, you should make him feel nervous about his ability to hold on to that position. Yeah. We don't know, Larry. <laughs> um, you want to tell people about what it is and where they can find it? It was well, really I guess cool. they can find it on the New York Times website. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little. <laughs> Just right under the Kissinger. A little start. I know. Thanks a lot, Henry. <laughs> This is my moment. Blew me off the front page. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, they, the New York Times Book Review is doing this, uh, has been doing this very cool thing called The Essentials, where they take authors who have large bibliographies that may be daunting to some people in terms of like, where do I begin? What's my best way into it? They've run really good ones on art, uh, writers as varied as uh, John le Carre, whom we love, and also Doris Lessing, like a, a bunch of interesting writers on there. And um, 
uh, old friend Gilbert Cruz, who's the editor there, reached out. And uh, this is how I spent my strikecation. Mm. Um, just just rereading, reading, sort of filling in blanks with in Larry World. And it was really fun to write. It's up, it's up now. I think it'll be in print sometime. But I it's can't wait till now. your dad reads it. Well, I, thank you. I made a prediction as to what his response would be. Mm. And it was, well, I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> that, that, that's what I thought the response would be. <laughs> but I, I have to keep it 1,000 and say that I, I received an incredibly sweet email. That's nice. That he, uh, yeah, he really liked it. That's good. He really liked it. Anything you can, you can do to get in his good graces. But I also think, um, we've talked about this before in different contexts, but like old media matters differently to older people. Yes. I say older because I listen to jazz, but... Um, you know, when in 1999, like I wrote a music review for the Washington Post, which says more about like their investment uh -huh. in, and to the, the day she died, my grandmother introduced me as her grandson who wrote for the Washington Post. I still think that the only thing my parents actually ever read by me was in the Grand Quarterlies because they were in books. Yes. Yeah. Was the C is dope put in it between was not. two covers? It was some of my early gonzo journalism about European football. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the response? They were just like, this is what an incredible, what an incredible way to get paid. <laughs> yeah, right. I had a couple of news things for you before we get into you, slow horses. You almost did the my dad imitation to talk about your parents. <laughs> I respect that. Um, so, mm. can I clear the decks hey, with one other thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you need to do your merrily along we go, Mia culpa? I like, you're like, I just listen to hardcore. I don't even know the names of musicals. <laughs> I just couldn't remember. It's cool. It's cool look, bro. Um, no, we, we get letters and I was like, this is the, 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 you know, the, the smallest slice of the Venn diagram of people listening to this podcast who care about Sondheim revivals on Broadway, uh, friend of the pod, Nick Grad from FX wrote in to say, A, he was at the same performance I was and B, I got the story totally wrong mm -hmm. about charity. The guy who bid on the sign, on the signed piece of paper, bought it to give to the actress who was the understudy that day. Oh. who had done such a beautiful job. and um, Is she in military again? No, the day that we saw it, the, it, it's Jonathan Groff, it's Daniel Radcliffe, and it's an actress named Lindsay Mendez. She was out the day that we saw it because I think she was uh, touring with Military Gun. And, and she was replaced <laughs> by an understudy named... You can't take my joke named, if you're going to cut my joke. I didn't, say, I didn't tell Kai to cut your joke. I told Kai to cut my pause after your joke. It's end of the year. Let's let them know. Uh, it's a callback. It's Thursday. People love it. Um, an actress named um, Sherz Alataha played the part of Mary Flynn. She was excellent. It was her debut playing that part on Broadway. And what Groff had written on Radcliffe's paper in the scene on the typewriter was uh, fucking Shares. Mm -hmm. Like, how great is she? So he bought it for her. Isn't that nice? That's awesome. Also, your guy David Fincher was there that day, I found out, via email from Jay Groff. Did you wait? Did you go up to him and say, I thought the killer was pretty good? Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't know if you heard my 40 minutes podcast about it, but that's fine. Um, I had a couple of things to read. Number one was just really like a quick headline, mm -hmm. which is the increasing trend or the, the emergent trend of streamers finding new places to put stuff. Okay. Uh, ABC will be airing the first uh, season of Only Murders in the Building. And ah. I wonder whether or not that is, you know, like I think, believe last year they did that with Andor, where Disney kind of like, I think sent that, it was on FX. It was on all of their channels around Thanksgiving. Yes. Right when no one was paying attention. But yeah. I think it, it aired on Freeform. It aired on FX. Uh, FX. I don't know if it aired on ABC I don't proper. Know if but it did they, either. But they did flood the zone. Uh, and, you know, obviously, 
CBS, especially during the strike, made a lot of hay, so mm-hmm. to speak, airing uh, Yellowstone. So um, much so that they're going to continue to. They're going to continue doing it. And I don't know if you had a take on this. I mean, I think that's Only Murders in the Building is apparently the most successful comedy ever on Hulu. It makes perfect sense that it would be a yeah. network show. I can't really even remember if there is any profanity or... I think there's some, like, some blue humor, but I don't think there's any... I don't think there's anything you would have to, like, massively excise from the show. Um, and it kind of sometimes is, like, well, why don't you guys just make this for network television? They're they're going to air it in three-episode blocks, so they're going to do mm-hmm. three episodes, three episodes, I think, two and one or something like that. Tim Kono? When's oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Tim yeah. Kono. Yeah. Uh, I think this... Okay, from a business perspective, this makes a ton of sense, and I think we'll see more and more of it. CBS was very, very nimble during the strike because of. I mean, I, I don't know if it speak. I don't know if it speaks to their management or just how prepared they were, um, or the fact that they are very, very reliant on both on CBS proper, but also across the Paramount divisions, very reliant on franchises that they were able to cobble together a fall schedule that kind of made sense. Yeah. And that includes, as you said, Yellowstone season one to going airing to Gonzo, like huge ratings. Yeah. Um, they have a very popular sitcom called Ghosts that's based on a UK sitcom. Mm-hmm. They aired the UK version. Mm. And then they also did, um, they have exported their formats around the world. Oh yeah, and so they have NCIS Australia. Sydney. Sydney. Yeah, yeah and of course that makes sense now. Like this this isn't the 90s playbook where it's like, I don't know, that guy sounds like Crocodile Dundee. I don't trust it. I'm yeah. going to change the channel. Um, these are familiar things. Take it a step further. This idea that there's there are two kinds of uh, viewers, one who only watches broadcast procedurals and one who only watches streaming is nonsense. Like everyone at this point watches a little bit or a lot of both. So you can muddy these waters. There's no... I don't understand, like, you're not protecting anything necessarily anymore. Yeah, I, I guess, um, I, I'm just surprised by how bare the cupboards are on network that mm-hmm. they don't do this more often. Oh, they will. Now yeah. they will. Because first of all, everyone's losing money across the board. And if you can get two paydays or two airings out of something, like, why wouldn't you? There's going to be less content, but no fewer hours to fill across these various services if you're still considering them as, like, scheduled hours to fill. But also, just as a fan or critic, like we should be making shows that have a potentially wide audience, which Mm -hmm. isn't to say things should be dumbed down, which isn't to say we shouldn't make the curse, which we're about to talk about. But, you know, for, for another project, I've been watching things like rewatching things like the office and God damn, that's good. That's really good stuff. And it continues to be good stuff because it's streaming on Peacock in perpetuity. But, the idea that market forces have caused us or caused an industry to self-silo things is preposterous. And to use this as an example, like our buddy Shea Serrano's show, Primo, Primo. Yeah. I, I understand why the market forces push that onto Amazon Freebie. And I'm happy for them. And I hope they get a second season there. And that's done through Mike Schur's deal at Universal, et cetera, et cetera. But that show should be on NBC. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I don't know. I mean, jury duty should be on ABC. Yes. You know? It doesn't like, really make sense except for who bought things, why they bought them, where they ended up. You know, those are not, those sorts of twist ourselves into knots overthinking things problems, I think, I hope, will be a casualty of the contraction in this strike year because 
yeah, I mean, you, you obviously, if you're selling subscriptions to premium services, you want there to be siloed content that you're paying for. But at the same time, what people are deem worthy of paying for is being reevaluated. I mean, it's why all of the streaming services are now rushing towards live sports, which used to be thought of as the providence only of broadcast. Mm-hmm. Like, put, put, put stuff where people can see it. Uh, the other thing that I had for you today, as mm-hmm. far as news goes, is I just thought this was an interesting uh, week of Hollywood publicly speaking about franchises uh, and sort of the state of franchise filmmaking and the kind of maybe the inertia that we're obviously experiencing with some of the superhero stuff with the Marvels not even cracking 100 million domestic. Uh, and Bob Iger uh, spoke this week at the Andrew Ross Sorkin Dealbook Summit. Anyone thing. else speak there? It I, like didn't, didn't, I didn't see anything come out of that otherwise. Didn't draw uh, a lot of news. Yeah. <laughs> My girl Yakarino. I don't know if she if she had any fun. <laughs> Low-key, the funniest thing that's been said on the podcast this year was that that name was a, a, a pusher rhyme from 2008. <laughs> I think that was just a text message I sent you. <laughs> well... It's the same thing. It's but all yeah. content. Um, That's really funny. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because there was like, I remember when I, in like the early 2000s, uh, there was a euphemism for cocaine that was that it was Dwight Yoakam. Uh, <laughs> and if Dwight Yoakam could be a euphemism for cocaine, I think Yaccarino certainly can. I mean, that is just, that's that's that high grade, high test stuff. Um so anyway, Bob Iger talked about like the sort of state of Marvel stuff and was like, we're now moving into an era where we're only going to green light sequels if this story makes sense, if the story warrants it. Mm-hmm. It's just like, good idea. Uh, and then I saw Edgar Wright, who himself was briefly uh, part of a, a Marvel film that never came to fruition, which was Ant-Man being right. taken over by his Peyton, version of it. His yeah. version of it. And he was sort of talking on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast about... Uh, the state of this kind of franchise filmmaking. And he pointed out something that I think is probably unremarked upon uh, or not talked about enough, which is scarcity driving up value for some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, uh, this is his quote, I feel like there are certain things that I love that I don't want to see again or I don't want to see them again for a long time. Uh, he was talking about, he just wishes some franchises would just kind of have the sense to take a breather and let people get excited about it again. Now, this is not like, I'm not... I'm not trying to aggregate what Edgar said or turn it into anything that it's not, but I was thinking about this because of Scream. Because Mm -hmm. Scream came back after a a healthy break. Yes. uh, Had a very good first film. Had an okay second film about these two sisters, the Carpenter sisters, and was basically going into pre-production. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt. I haven't seen these movies, but I believe the main issue was that they cast the Oakland City Council. (laughs) (laughs) As the lead actress? No, it was that uh, right. So Melissa Barrera has been let go from the project because the production did disagree with some of her comments on Israel and Palestine. And then Jenna Ortega left because of scheduling issues. Mm-hmm. Although in a Hollywood Reporter piece mm-hmm. on the franchise, Uh-oh. it suggested that there were also some salary disputes, which is also why Nev Campbell is no longer in the franchise because she didn't feel like her salary mm-hmm. measured up to her contribution. So this thing is in, quote, shambles, according to The Hollywood Reporter. And it seems like it's just like, you know, what we should do is, in fact, the the thing that people care about with Scream largely, while I think they, I have like an global ad- politics, an attachment Sorry, to Neff Campbell. I know you're just on fire today. I think it's just Kissinger's death. You're thinking about the world, you know? I am. Uh, while like global, sorry, while <laughs> I gotcha, I'm into like the Nev Campbell, David Arquette, kind of Courtney Cox part of it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what you want is a story that supports a guy in a ghost face mask running around stabbing people. 
The Carpenter's sister's plot of these two films, I will just say, sure. was getting increasingly convoluted and and kind of probably had run out of gas anyway. Maybe they had a great idea for a third one, but they're not going to be doing that specific version. So I don't know if there's really... Is it bad if it goes away for three, four years? No. That, no I mean, I'm not the target audience, right. but that's okay. I mean, there is... There's definitely, this is an industry based on, like many industries probably, but momentum. And it is very, very hard to get anything going. And once something is going, often the goal is to do anything to, to, to keep it from stopping, right? And so I understand why any success will immediately lead to the green lighting and the building up of another one, because it is harder, it is incredibly hard to start or restart things from a full stop. But that said, if anybody... I guess the thing to say is it's rare to hear someone in a position of authority or power like a Bob Iger take that view. It's easier for an Edgar Wright or people on podcast, any us on podcast sure. to be like, hey, maybe it would be healthier to take a break. If you're in the business of making things, you want to do, you want to keep making things no matter what. But yeah, it's one of the reasons why, despite decades, almost essentially decades of zero interest for me in, in DCU properties, mm-hmm. I remain pretty excited about the Superman movie. Big boy Jim. Because Big Jim coming in. But also, it's been a very long time since there has been a good Superman story. So, okay, let's see. Let's see what you got. No, Taking a break, I mean, I, I think a lot of these things ought to take a break and, 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 and reassess. I thought the interesting thing about Iger's comments also was that he was trying to like kind of reframe the conversation and the Yo, quote that well, I saw. He was like, the idea that these movies should always be making a billion dollars, that we got used to that is actually probably bad for us and that we need to recalibrate our expectations. Guys, everything costs too much. And I'm not just talking about the price of gas in California. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know I drive an electric car. You're welcome, Earth. But, but you know, like, yeah, all of these Marvel movies are penciled in at a budget of like $250 million. And we, that's insanity. That is an impossible number to yeah. keep getting return of investment on investment in on. I was reading an interview with uh, Andrew Davis. Uh, it was about the anniversary of the film The Fugitive. And yeah. uh, he was talking, and like, the, the person interviewing was like, well, this is like a mid-budget movie. And it, I think it cost like 45 or 60 or 50. And he was just like, well, in today's numbers, this would probably be a $90 million movie. Right. The whole problem, though, is even if you account for the inflation or the 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 change in in you know what what things cost, uh, which is inflation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Andrew Ross Sorkin over here. It's uh, nobody makes ninety million dollar movies really, or if they do, right. that's what air costs, and air shouldn't cost ninety million or one hundred and thirty million dollars. Everything is 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 wildly. Uh, Would you blame off. that mostly on unions? Uh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> Hashtag Yakarino over here. No, you, I'm watching Gilded Age a lot. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you know, you knew I was going to find a way to work this in, but I saw the motion picture Priscilla. Uh-huh. And one thing that I, uh, this is Sofia Coppola's movie about Priscilla Presley. And one thing that I really appreciated <laughs> about it. clarifying that. I don't know. Some people might not know. I saw Priscilla. I could be talking about our new colleague here. Yeah, right. The Ringer Podcast Network. I don't know. Um, I know you knew, not that you're rushing out to see it, um, that it was very clearly a movie with a very specific budget, all of which went into production design. But like, 
I almost appreciated the novelty in this day and age of seeing a biopic that was mostly told through small rooms. You know, Uh I'm not saying that necessarily worked throughout the movie. I thought it worked in the beginning, but not the end. The only time you see Jacob Elordi's Elvis on stage, it's shot from the back with the stage lights on him. And you're like, well, Sophia just filmed him in an empty auditorium. Like it's all done through suggestion. And that, that felt interesting to me, even if the movie ultimately didn't come together. How much did Andrew Davis, the director of The Fugitive, talk about his later filmography? He didn't much. Because one of the weirder filmographies, like... He got hired on the I lo- fugitive. I love it when you get on Google and you just start. No, I've, I googled. Things I googled because I forgot the name of the movie he came after. But I've always thought about this because before the fugitive, he made Under Siege, yeah. which is look, the surprisingly good Seagal movie, right? And it did really well. Yes. And then he got the fugitive job, and it was like nominated for Oscars. And the old way that that the old Hollywood was that if you made a good one for them, you got to do your dream your project. Jam. Yeah. And do you remember his dream project? No. Steel big, steel little, with Andy Garcia as identical twins. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't watch identical twins movies so, or, or shows, so that's, that's why. why. Um, and then he made Chain Reaction with Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman. And have you yeah. ever noticed that Rachel Weisz has essentially been Rachel Weisz for like 25 years? Even that she, she looks exactly the same? Yes. She's a goddess. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's totally true. Okay. I want to get into Slow Horses. Is that okay? Was she in Chain? She was in Chain Reaction. Yeah. That movie is 27 years old. And then she's basically doing the same thing. Not the same thing, but she a similar role in uh, Born Legacy. Yes. Just just a, a couple decades later. Is she coming in for Chain Reaction too? I thought you were about to break news. <laughs> so don't aggregate this. Okay. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back. We'll do Slow Horses. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, we're back. Andy, um, you haven't been responding to a lot of my IG reels that I send you, but it's there's true. one that's going around a lot right now that I think applies I to— I just think we have enough forms of communication. You but know? I think this is a very pure one for me. And I, you know, it's like, you start sending me texts at like 7 in the morning. We're just like, morning. well, look at this. This is an interesting take on world events. One was 540. Um I'm allowed to send you just like a bunch of memes at the end of the night. Yeah, but like I, I just feel like we have a robust conversation on mics. Yeah. We talk on the phone with regularity, which sure. means a lot to me. We we text. We text on our, our Philadelphia sports fan Doom Scroll chat. Uh-huh. I'm the I'm the Doom. Everyone else's <laughs> scroll. Um what do you what do you you know? Well, if you looked at what I sent you, you uh-huh. would know that there's currently maybe Kaya knows this one too. There's currently a, a fun one going around where it uses uh it's a Logan Logan Roy meme, mm-hmm. uh, and this is how I feel about slow horses, okay, which is great. when you, you fire up slow horses and there's a foot chase through Istanbul mm-hmm. that winds up with a dead body at the bottom of a soccer stadium. I am like Logan Roy, where I go, I love it in here. I fucking love it. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, this is the best executed show on television right now. I'm so excited that this came back so hard. This show, the first two episodes, we're going to talk about spoilers for this series, this season of Slow Horses. So it's the first two. It starts, like, it grabs you by the throat and doesn't let go for two full episodes with, like, legit old school Mm 24-style cliffhangers where, like, I'm just like, I I got to do it. I got to hit play. It is so good this season. When TV is good, it looks so easy. Yes. This show rules. <laughs> you didn't even mention that the chase in the first moments of the first one is between two of just like the CR all-stars. Yes. It's Sope Dirisu from Gangs of London. Gangs of London. And yeah. Catherine Waterson. Last scene removing a guy's face <laughs> in Gangs of London. And now, yeah. um, you know, there's there's hummus involved. Yeah. And, uh, and Catherine Waterston, uh, last seen in your dream journal. I can't remember the last thing I've actually seen Catherine Waterson in. Um, Perry Mason. Oh, right. I forgot. Um, which is really bad for AM to the PM. I, well, we'll um, talk about it on tomorrow morning's episode. So, uh, broadly speaking, this episode, the series of Slow Horses is based on the McHaren novel Real Tigers. Uh, so, basically, each season of six episodes is based on a different novel in McHaren's ongoing uh, Slough House Slow Horses Series. I think there's seven or eight books right now. I've read four. Uh, very excited for the fourth one, which is good because they have already started production on the fourth season mm-hmm. of this show. And when I say that this is the best executed show, it's not only in terms of what we see on screen and the enjoyment that we obviously get from a really well-told spy thriller. The way that they are doing this to put up a third season in 18 months. Yes. To have this spine of these Mick Heron novels where you're like, hey, if people like this, we figured out a way to do it and it really works. We can just keep doing these every nine or 10 months in Gary Oldman's free time 
and Jack Loudon's free time and these people's like time where they're not making movies or whatever else or smelting and talking about two Englands. And this is such a, like to know that this is going to come back on next summer or next, even next December or whatever it is, is so fantastic. Apple's doing such a good job of like integrating some British television production Mm -hmm. sort of totems of like, hey, series don't have to be that long. Hey, like we can do them on odd. It doesn't have to be fall, spring or whatever. It can be like one, two come out in one year, one comes out one year. Then when Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman can do this, Mm -hmm. we come back for a Sherlock Christmas special. It doesn't matter. I don't think you can overstate the reliability of it and what that means to the show. I also don't think you can overpraise uh, the developer, Will Smith, Mm -hmm. not that Will Smith, nor the Los Angeles Dodgers Will Smith, um, for the job that he does, striking a tone that is incredibly appealing and light, but profoundly stakesy, and you feel every um, every every moment of threat, of menace, uh, every chase scene, every punch thrown you feel, but you're also enjoying the feeling. It is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not common. The structure of this is also so remarkable. It's not just that you have a new book for each new season. They are cumulative. They build on each other. They refer to things that happened before, but you don't need to know everything that happened before. So people listening to this wondering if you could jump in with season three, sure, why not? Yeah. You are grabbed and and they and, and pulled There into might be three. like one or two references to things that have mm-hmm. happened in past seasons, and there's something with a diamond in this season that it would help to have seen yes. in season two for, but that's really it. But they communicate it to you. So you know, because we know what diamonds are, and we understand that people want them. Yeah. And, and also the nature of these books, which I haven't read, but clearly they're represented in the show, characters come and go, some willingly, some unwillingly. And the bench, at least in terms of the characters that McCarran has created and the the deep acting bench of England yeah. has provided like face after face that you want to spend more time with. So the broad outline of the plot, so in so much as we can tell after two episodes, is there's, as Andy res- uh, mentioned, there's like sort of a preamble scene that takes place in Istanbul between these two agents, uh, Catherine uh, Watterson and, and Sophie Dirsu, and they... they um, they seem to be, they're obviously like uh, having an affair, but then there is an element of like Catherine Waterston's character, Allison, being a double agent. There's a foot chase. And at the end of that, she winds up seemingly dead, I would assume. Uh, she certainly seems dead. Mm-hmm. I imagine she will contribute in some sort of flashback you're, capacity. You're not a doctor. They did a real close up. They sure did. You know, like it wasn't like that could be anyone. I at was the bottom. devastated. Yeah. Uh, I, I was like, oh, Watterson. dead body at the bottom. Her. Definitely her, definitely dead. Did you take a minute? Uh, oh, I was just like, this is interesting, the, what, what they're going to do here. It's not a huge flashback show, so especially one with the season that they've got. It's got so much forward momentum, which essentially starts instantly as they get back into the Slough House world. And even though the slow horses are essentially doing a bunch of clerical work, there is a... In the off chance, someone who doesn't know, we should say... The show is about the spies who get bounced out of spy headquarters. Yeah, it's spies who have been like relegated to the bench. They're losers. And they're they're led by a king loser, played by the flatulent, chain smoking, drinking genius Jackson Lamb, played by Gary Oldman in not it's not the role of his life and that it's the best role, but it is the accumulation of his life. Obviously, also something that he has just said publicly, I will do this for as long as they will have me. He's he's uh, having a great time. Also just walks around like with this insane wig on. Is it a wig? Uh, I think he's Method Man. 
Is he? That, that's his. You think he's like that's his body. That's I, his hair. I, I was just watching a Gary Oldman YouTube video where he was talking about like darkest hour, and I was like, that's a pretty handsome guy. But I guess he could grow his gray stringy hair out and not wash it ever. I think he's happy. Okay. Also stars uh, Jack Loudon as um, kind of the James Bond. If what if James Bond fucked up all the time? <laughs> so he is the sort of more Jason Bourne athletic, typical spy. Uh, and then there is this incredible bench. I just want to uh, shout out specifically for this season, uh, Rosalind Elzar, who plays Louisa Guy. Uh, she's fantastic this season. And then we've talked before about Saskia Reeves, who plays Catherine Standish. She's just awesome. But the ensemble, as you get into these later seasons, you start to get used to, oh, yeah, this person is like this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, the, the best part about this season is that there's no setup. Mm-mm. There's no ponderous kind of, what does... What did these people do to find themselves in this place? They're all here. This is where they are. This is the situation they found themselves in. And then this show has a essentially Ethan Hunt having to go get the knock list twist. But everyone hates Ethan Hunt. Yeah. So River has to break into Regent's Park, which is the home of, of the British Secret Service. The farm. To get the prime minister's vetting file, which is in the most secret of secret high security locations. It's one of my favorite set pieces I've seen in forever is Mm -hmm. this guy manically talking his way down and then (laughs) punching people, but also pretending that he's going to give a speech to new recruits. It's like, it's great. It's such a fantastically orchestrated bit. And it I'm in classic slow horses fashion does not matter. Can I get on my high horse about slow horses for a second? Yeah. I really liked season one. I liked season two. I'm in love with season three so far. I don't know if that means it's better or if it's more of where I'm at or where the industry is at or what this year in TV has been at. And I just want to say, like, why can't we do more of this? We've named a hundred things that are, well, a dozen things that are specific to this in terms of the tone of the books and the existing uh, uh, IP of the books, the the Oscar-winning actor wanting to do this, uh, the deep bench of British talent, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that it's not easy. But... To create a show that is this gripping, with this much fun, that is this pleasurable to watch, that is delivered on time, this should be the goal. I mean, I think we, I think in some ways, I think we underrate something that we were alluding to at the beginning of the conversation about like how much you have to watch to get it. Um, I, I had a, a friend came over while I was watching the second episode of the third season. Mm-hmm. And my last 10 years of TV brain took over being like, I'm so sorry. You know, I I, I just got, I, I'm watching the show. Let me explain a couple things, but there was no time to really explain. Guess what? They were like, I got it. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Immediate fun. Fun to watch just by turning it on. It's so that's weird rare. that that's television rare. has kind of, kind of written itself into this corner where yes. you and I would, like I had the same experience when I was away for Thanksgiving and I was watching Fargo and every time someone would wander into the living room, I'd be like, well, this is Noah Hawley's take on, and you know, I feel like I had to explain, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about Fargo on Monday, but we, I had to explain the entire mythology of Fargo, mm-hmm. everything that had happened on screen, and they were like, no, I got it. Like, she used to be his wife. They're two Americans. Yeah, like, but also like, she's running, she's got a secret, I got it. Like, there are things that people would pick up on, but I think sometimes the barrier to entry with shows, especially say like something like, other Apple shows that have been on for two, three, four seasons, like For All Mankind. And we often see in the Facebook group about our pod where people are asking, like, is it okay to jump in on Justified in this season? Is it okay to jump in on Fargo on that season? And it's like, yeah, it's fine. 
if you really love it, go back and be a completist about it. But yeah. like, there, it, television is supposed to be able to welcome you in no matter where you join. Yeah, maybe this is the the unexpected theme of this episode. But like, there are a lot of unforced errors to undo in this industry yeah. and where we ended up. And, and one of them was like, this show should only be here due to licensing rights and the way we designed it and packaged it and sold it in-house to our own streamer, blah, blah, blah. This is another one. Like, Slow Horses is proof that you can make something of very high quality uh, and still be a TV show. So one of the things I'll say about this show, you, you mentioned it being like maybe even better than the first two seasons, which I agree with. I think I liked... I think I loved one. I thought two was pretty good, but I also think that that goes with the books. Like I thought the book, the mm. second book was like pretty good, but not my favorite. This show is now able to generate so much material that it can have throwaway bits mm -hmm. that don't like crucially matter. Like even little things like the obvious emergence of Jackson Lamb's protective instincts over Catherine Standish. Mm -hmm. So he has these little lines where they're like, why would they kidnap Catherine? which is sort of driving the entire plot of the season, we should say. And Lamb says, I don't know, but they must have a death wish. <laughs> and it's that's pretty pretty cool. But like, unless you kind of have developed that relationship after mm -hmm. a while, you can't really get away with that line. Then there's also lots of just really funny bits. River running crazily through the tube station and some guy just being like, ha ha, I'm going to make you wait. And then him puncturing him in the kidney is really, really funny. <laughs> Did that make you miss New York? It made me miss London. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what else? I mean, I think that uh, you mentioned the bench. I love how characters who are sort of at front and center of different seasons can show up for a scene. Like Freddie Fox. Freddie Fox. Bumpy Knuckles. Yeah, right. He's so good. He's such a good actor. He's he's like, I, I, I don't know what it's like to walk through life like this guy and look like your job is to play a twat in a period piece. <laughs> like, but he knows that. He knows that. Yeah. And he he did it in The Pursuit of Love, the Emily Mortimer's great show last year. Oh, I mean, like yeah. that. He's he's gonna work forever, but he's also self-aware and a really good actor. And he his appearance in the second episode of the season, as you said, not credited main cast, but such a great choice. And this you can just do that if you have this bench to to play with. Um, you've built up this goodwill, you've built up good characters, you've cast them well. It's really rewarding. It's hard to articulate this idea that like A to B to C to D is the, I mean, that's the way all narrative goes. And when you're watching Slow Horses, even though it sometimes goes in surprising directions, you you feel pulled along. You understand mm -hmm. that there's a machinery at work here. Yeah, there's a lot of but, like Jackson figures it all out just by yeah. looking at like one guy with a hat next to a bus stop. But that's delightful. That's what Columbo did too, yeah. you know? And there's a reason why that's appealing to us. I don't mind him being ahead of the audience because we enjoy spending time with him probably because we can't smell him. That's probably true. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so we're obviously like, I'm thrilled with Slow Horses. Thrilled. I'm thrilled with Slow Horses. And the first two episodes of Slow Horses and the first two episodes of Fargo got me being like, TV is back. Yeah, we can do this. We are fucking back. We can still do this. Let's talk about the third episode of The Curse, which, so the first two episodes we covered. We didn't really cover two. That was why I got confused. I walked in here pretty confused about how many episodes I had seen. Mm-hmm. Because um, I was too busy just doing some like post screening research. Yeah, I think Priscilla, we only did the you know? first. So maybe we did. We, we did just do the first episode. We did the Tomato Boys. Okay, and then the second episode is that's the one that ends with her thinking she's. Uh, that, that that's the one where where they know that they learn that it's not viable. Right, 
In the second episode. In the second episode. And then the third episode is they take over the, the apartment building. The pregnancy is the is this the second episode begins with the, the pregnancy test. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then we get to the third episode, and that's the kind of getting more into like the the curse and whether it's a TikTok trend or not. And where is your head at with this show? It's been a roller coaster for me. Thank you for asking. I was surprisingly in on the pilot. I surprising for your sense of for humor, me, not for yeah, yeah, no, not because the bona fides of the people involved would have suggest suggest something worthwhile. Um, the second episode I struggled with because there were things in it that I loved, like anything Benny Safdie was doing involving a breathalyzer mm-hmm. and his performance in general, which yeah. is just like this guy's. I don't understand why he's such a good actor, but he's a really, really good actor. Yeah. The sequence of Asher, Nathan Fielder's character, essentially doing what we were just saying about slow horses, like breaking into his former place of employment involving a Gatorade, was why I can't watch his other shows. Mm-hmm. I watched it, but like I don't get a lot of pleasure out of that. Sure. It, 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 and, and, it, and it pushed past the point of reason for me or plausibility, I guess, even in a show as warped as this one. The third one episode pulled me back in. The third one, um, and, and I think will keep me in because there's so much, there's so, we said this about the pilot in a potentially not, I don't know if it was a negative way, but we were like, there's so much going on here because there's so much story. The third episode really helped me understand what one of the show's projects is and like why, I, why I'm interested in it. And it's for me, it's almost entirely about Emma Stone, mm-hmm. who I think is one of our great actors. I've been thinking that for a while. Um, no, you're on the record about that. I am fully on the record about that <laughs> since since Zombieland. I, it's not, you know, that was maybe not a, as risky. A, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just a tick that I think we both have, but that podcasters yeah. in general have, where it's like Zion Williamson, who I've I've always been skeptical of. Yeah, yeah, you know, like. <laughs> Well, I was recently watching some, um, you'll love this, some uh, Colin Coward clips of like him being like Jalen Hurts is not a legitimate quarterback. And then him What's doing What's wrong it, with you? Then him do, I'm broken. You know this. But, but do they, you go to social media and Google who's trolling me about the Eagles and watch videos No, because it? no, w- the reverse. Because he gave like a four minute monologue into microphone that reminded me of, of the time you, you'd missed an episode. <laughs> Frankly, I was like, let's see how the greats do it. So I can- There's no it. one better than him. Um, him and Rosillo are, the, are, are, are so good at going solo. But Coward was basically like, we are underrating- greatness in Jalen Hurts. And I was like, this is, I'm going to fall asleep to this. I'm going to loop this and it's going to make me feel good as I fall asleep. Anyway, um, Emma Stone is so committed to her performance. And what I loved about this episode is that she's so skilled. I understood like on a cellular level that her performance, which is, which is broad and intense and is matching a lot of the energy of what Safdie and Fielder bring is the way people tend to perform mm-hmm. in real life. Not that it's a quote-unquote realistic performance, but the elements of her performance that are intentionally broad, like the way she is with the family in the house, this is a lot of the way we, a lot of people are in their daily life now. And then that was underscored by the by the end of the episode, which is the sort of, we just had a cute natural moment, let's recreate it uh, for the gram. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that felt like a really a much richer vein to me than some of the other um, contemporary criticism or contemporary observations of the show about how like well-intentioned liberals are, but to what end? Yeah. I mean, there's, 
there's something about so there's a scene in the third episode where uh, Emma Stone tries to take off her turtleneck and it gets stuck and then like he helps her and she like falls under the bed and it's funny mm-hmm. and then she's like we have to recreate this for social media and they do and it turns into an argument that then gets recorded now not necessarily uploaded but I mm-hmm. think just is like essentially it feels like one long take I'm sure there's cuts but like when I watch it I remember just thinking like how obviously like agonizing watching this thing go from being cringe because they're trying to recreate something viral or not even viral but something spontaneous mm-hmm. as content and then that because content because the focus meeting, group said that he's not funny and right. they're not and natural. they're like no the, people should see this side of you mm-hmm. Ashley let's recreate this and then it turns into a fight and the fight is like belies that they've obviously had a lot of problems for a long time and that they're seeing this couples therapist and that that she's she can be a little bit harsh on him but mm-hmm. obviously he is a pretty odd dude and anyway, the way that the scene goes out, I was thinking about how rare it is to see someone of her magnitude in in an almost unadorned piece of drama outside of like a stage performance. Mm-hmm. Like even in something like say Marriage Story, like you watch Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, they're big movie stars, they're in these huge franchises, but you're like, wow, they're really playing human beings and doing this. But there is a certain containment to like the scenes, the cutting, the cinematography, the writing is very precise. Mm-hmm. This really does feel like hidden cameras. And, it, and I think that's the point is like the reason why we're feeling so uncomfortable is there's this voyeuristic element to a lot of the way it's shot and the way it's put together. So that it almost, it's not even that it feels like a reality show. It feels like B-roll from a reality show. Like on Survivor when they're like, actually there was this moment where this person had a breakdown behind a palm tree, but we still captured it Mm -hmm. with our cameras. That's what this whole show feels like. And I keep getting into, um, you know, what is this show about? What is this show about? And I, because so much has happened just in the three hours that we've seen, I have to assume that so much more is going to mm-hmm. take place over the seven hours that we have that's, to go. That's really wild. Yeah, and it's such a densely plotted show that I don't want to get too ahead of my skis by being like, well, these two are basically a metaphor for the country itself being completely overleveraged and sacrificing all kinds of principles mm-hmm. for the chasing of like, a kind of personal brand awareness and stuff like that. Like, there's a lot in this show. And, and beyond that, the idea that, like, people used to be rapacious and upfront being like, I would like to become wealthy. And then now we're like, I would like to be a saint. Yeah. And I would like to be thought of well. Well, and then you your point also about the sort of liberal good intentions that are on display. I think that there's, or rather, actually, like, the way she performs mm-hmm. and the intensity that she brings to even these, like, sort of small interactions... I think it has a lot to do with the fact that this show is about what happens when your personal life is the thing that's marginalized by your professional life. Mm-hmm. So everything that they're doing essentially is part of their jobs. And the only time it's not is in these kind of deliriously upsetting private moments that they have where it's either him pleasuring her with a named vibrator mm-hmm. or them having a fight over like a fake viral video well, they're trying to create. Well, it's significant that he's like the windows of this house would allow someone to stare right in at mm-hmm. us. And that's contrasted with the fact that they build mirrored houses where people only yeah. see themselves. It's a dense text. Yeah. And I'm trying to be careful with how we process it, not because, as you wisely point out, there's a lot more to go. I'm trying to recal- make sure I have the right calibration set when I watch this because um, we've just come off of 
two episodes of podcasting where we're praising Fargo and Slow Horses for their execution, their successful execution. That's not a metric you can apply or should apply to all things. Whether the curse is a success or not, from our point of view, I, I don't even know if that matters. Mm-hmm. They were given the free the reign to do this, so we are getting a chance to see what these three creators, these three artists wanted, and I'm including Emma Stone in it, even though she's not listed as a writer or director, what they wanted to do. And that's worthwhile. Yeah. They are not, I don't feel like, sometimes my my calibration is off as evidenced by some inflammatory writings over the years, but also like, <laughs> whether it's like, on mostly on 8chan, but sometimes on Grantland. But like, the, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking about all those all that's work I did for Jill, for Jill Stein yeah. that somehow didn't get over. Um, anyway, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I don't feel like they are taking advantage of me or of their opportunity to do this. I was, you know, I, in addition to Philly Special and Bill, I also sometimes listen to the Mark Maron podcast, and I was enjoying Albert Brooks on this week, mm-hmm. which has like long been his white whale to talk to Albert Brooks and. I'm a fan of Albert Brooks and it's a fantastic podcast and one of my favorite, it really better than this one. So you should probably just stop and just switch over, but I'm going to burn one thing from it. That was awesome where he was basically like, he feels badly for people who are trying to create things or start a career of creating stuff these days, because the temptation to see immediately what other people think of it is so great. Yeah. You can go online. And he was like, my attitude is, do I like it? Do the rich people who cut the checks like it? Good. Why the fuck should I care if you like it? Right. Who are you? Right. And is that always the healthiest attitude in work and life? I don't know. But like in this case, Safdie and Fielder and Stone seem pleased with it. So yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm, I mean, so far it feels it feels like basically one of the bigger swings creatively that I've seen on television since, frankly, Twin Peaks, the Twin Peaks re- revival, which also tellingly was on Showtime. So whoever's green light and stuff over there. Is no it, longer employed. But it's also but funny that one job, every once one time every five years, they're like, here's a blank check to make whatever you use in your head. I mean, that is, I was gonna say that something I've said before, which is like the curse maybe should be paid more more attention should be paid to the curse because it is a relic of, I think, a version of the industry that is, if not gone forever, in remission in terms of risk taking mm-hmm. um, and empowering creatives. Actually, it's unequivocally uh, a relic from Showtime which no longer yeah. functionally exists anymore. And one of the interesting things about it, I mean, creative people worked there, creative work got through there, but they had two things were constants. One, they found a couple brands and then they ran them for eight or nine seasons, whether it was Homeland or it was Dexter. and um, Or Billions or whatever. Yeah, and and the other, uh, the other constant was that they wanted to be in the mix. And when people brought projects onto the marketplace in, in quotes, this town, they took swings sometimes mm-hmm. that on shows that the creators probably thought might be on HBO and Showtime still wanted to be in that conversation. So you got Twin Peaks season three, you got the good Lord bird. Um, oh, yeah. You get this. Nathan Fielder makes shows for HBO. Now this is not on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, we'll probably keep checking in on this as the weeks go by. We'll definitely be talking about Fargo on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose there will be another, will there be another slow horses by then? I'm like, no, I guess not. I wish there was. I wish there was. I, do you think we should continue to like unspool this Rashomon-like narrative of me on Broadway last week? Like, is there another angle we yeah. could cover? Maybe we should do like, uh, instead of the wedding scammer, we should do like who was really at Merrily. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving? Yeah. and, and just... Make yourself known. <laughs> um, thanks to Kaya for producing us. 
Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we have a bunch of really fun shows planned for the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Not going to spoil them because who knows if they'll actually get pulled off. But uh, expect the usual year-end content as the weeks go on. And, and some unusual year-end content. Oh, well, yeah. And my jazz pod. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a backdoor pilot for it. I think, I think people are interested. I think they're interested. But be like Albert Brooks. Why would you care? As long as Kaya and you like it, that's the only thing that matters. Kaya just looked away. (laughs) All right, talk to you guys on Monday.